lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Day Show. And greetings. Welcome to a special edition of the Steve Day Show. That would be me, Todd Erzin, and Aaron McIntyre are here as well. If you would like to join us and let us know what you think about what we think, steve at stevedace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Also look for us on MeWe, Parlor and Gab and look for non-edited, uncensored, unfiltered clips of the program via rumble.com slash Steve Day Show. Again, that's rumble.com slash Steve Day Show. Well, gentlemen, I mentioned that today is a special edition of the program. And today we're going to kind of alter our typical format and have a broad-based two-hour conversation about what I think is the most pressing political problem we face on the right, right this moment. It's, it's not the biggest problem. I, did I say it was the biggest problem? No. 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 In fact, um, I would actually prefer this problem compared to some other pressing political problems we've had in the past. Okay, but when I say pressing, it's because time is of the essence. Timing is of the essence. Is this a bigger problem for us than getting rid of critical race theory or critical racist theory? No. No. Is it a bigger problem for us than ending abortion? No. No. Or protecting the border? No. No. So I want to make sure we start off by putting this in in its right and proper context. It's just a pressing problem because timing in life is it may not be everything but it is a lot of things right i mean you look at the success of of our book todd one of the main reasons for its success was its timing yes right i mean if we had brought the book out now which is about the time it would have come out um uh you know sometime later in 2021 if we had done this in hardcover or you know a typical publishing uh process would we have sold a hundred thousand copies of that book Probably not. Probably not. Would it still have been the most successful book I've had my name on? Sure, because of the subject matter and the growth of this program. This is, this program has grown more uh, and broader than it ever has been before. But would we have sold 100,000 copies of this? No, we would probably not have. We were the first out of the gate. We got it out into the audiences at first. And so it kind of owned this space all to itself that now a lot of other people, thankfully, are now addressing and, and attacking at the same time. Fair? Correct. So timing is not everything, but it is a big thing. And so that's why we would describe this as the most pressing problem we have on the right. What is that problem? Should we be down for Trump 2024? Now, when we say that we have bigger problems... We do. We just listed a few. When I say I, I would prefer this pressing problem to many of the others I've had to address in my career in politics, it's because whatever you think about him as an individual or a brand, at the same time, he has delivered more for us than any national Republican figure I can think of in recent memory, certainly since Reagan left the national stage. Can you think of anybody on a on a national level that's delivered more for us? It's a low bar, but no. It is a low bar. Yeah. And that see that but that's our dilemma, is it yeah. not? The dilemma is did he do enough? 
Exactly. Have we already been disappointed by, I mean, Neil Gorsuch already has codified uh, gender mutilation as a, into the civil code. Amy Coney Barrett refused to give the deciding vote on cert for that poor florist in Washington State, Baron L. Stutzman. Right. So can we sit here and say that he did enough? I mean, it only took a few day, a few weeks of the Biden administration since Trump could get nothing done, either when Republicans had Congress or Democrats. Uh, he had to do everything by the stroke of a pen, pretty much. And so the Biden administration came in and wiped away a lot of his presidency in a matter of weeks, if not months, right? So did he do enough? I think all three of us would also answer no, right? Correct. But did he do more than we have gotten before? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. And so this is our dilemma. Both these things are absolutely true. So when we see, see our, our fans or listeners or followers or viewers or our peers in our industry say, hey, he's done more for us than any president in 30 years, because that's how long ago Reagan left the national stage. Is Hard that, to argue is, with. Is that true? <laughs> yeah. It is true. But then when people like us and some other people come back with, yeah, but then we didn't do this, this, we didn't follow up on that. Is that also true? Yes. See, this now is, this is the dilemma, is it not? These things are both true and, 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 and I think empirically true at the same time. Yes. Okay. And, and I, that's and, important because that's called being a grown up. And yes, and the tribalisms are nonstop. On this front, they're needless most of the time. Yes. This is this is empirical. This is one plus one equals two stuff, if you let it. And then you can get on to uh, uh, algebra and calculus. Sure. But you can never get there if you keep sure. telling yourself the same just, lies. Just make it personal for a second. If my wife was here, we put the Wonder Woman lasso of truth around her. And you asked her, is Steve Dace a good husband to you? I believe her answer would be yes. If you asked her, has Steve Dace let you down as your husband in the past? You know what her answer would also be? Yes. Yes. Okay, and so this is where the calculus and the dilemma comes in. Do the letdowns outweigh the overall assessment? Okay, so I now just speaking for me personally, and maybe I'll let you two chime in on this as well. The reason why we're going to have this conversation today is twofold. One, I will address in a moment because a, a brilliant piece was written earlier that I thought so well articulated this dilemma and from a guy that I think is it could be the most cash money uh, political analyst and observer of our time, Angelo Codevilla. Um, I, I, that I just think the way he he um, illustrates this, how eloquent he is in laying this out, I think he's given us a good launching off point to have, an, as you said, an adult conversation about it. Here's the other reason, though, that let's address the second one first. I think we have a limited window to have this conversation. That I don't, I don't think it benefits us. Now, I say that with the caveat. If Trump runs again and decides, hey, I'm pro-choice and uh, open borders, then, of course, that changes all the calculus, correct? Mm-hmm. But, if he even, but if he runs as a baseline what he was as a president, then the normal, well, you know, the normal vetting process or angst about certain things we may disagree with will be so dramatically in contrast and superior to what is currently running the country that that's a little bit like arguing with one of your children about the fact they got on a they got a C in an algebra class when when the other child failed phys ed you know what i'm saying i mean it's yeah. just this this ain't the time for that conversation i mean we had far bigger problems to grasp that doesn't mean 
that you should be satisfied that your kid only got a C in algebra when you think they can do better. It just means that the time to address that is not when your other kid comes home and is so dumb they failed phys ed. I got to deal with that one first, right? You just described why I voted for Trump last yes. time. Yes, but, but are we at that juncture yet? No. Nope. So when is it the time to have this conversation? See, I before think it's right now. There. Yeah, I think it's before we get there. I think we need to have this converse. In fact, I think we have to have the conversation before we get to the before we get there. Because if we decide, hey, we've got to move on, you need to have time for somebody else to emerge, right? So I think now is actually the time to have a serious conversation about this. And we picked today's show as a special edition to do that. Because it is a conversation that needs to be had. And in my opinion, it would only accomplish two positive goals. Either A, we agree as a movement that, that we have a role to play in demanding more and getting a better version of Donald Trump than we got in the past. Or B, we as a movement have decided that we can do, we, we, we thank Trump for what he's done to move the ball this far down the field, but we think we can go even further without him. Either one of those outcomes are good, right? Yes. It really, but, but, but for you to enjoy this conversation on your end and to be an adult about it, here's what you have to do. You've got to get, you've got to abandon either orange man bad or Cheeto Jesus saves. If you come into today's show with either one of those, in fact, if you came into today's show with either one of those, you're already annoyed. You're, you're annoyed already, right? Yes. All right. So you certainly will not enjoy the rest of this program. If you aren't willing to abandon one of those two canards slash shibboleths slash idols at this very point right now. Fair? Yes. Okay. So let's spend the show having this conversation. But first, let's let Angelo Code Villa begin to lay this out for us. And we'll see. I'm going to do something we don't do a lot on this program. A little tip of the cap to Rush. He used to do it geniusly. That'll work. Uh, brilliantly on his show all the time. Uh, often with Thomas Sowell columns <laughs> or Bill Buckley pieces. Uh, in my opinion, I think Angelo Codevilla is the best, is the best and most brilliant political analyst we have produced as a movement since Seoul. I mean, the piece that he wrote 10 plus years ago on the ruling class, which just seems so radical in 2008, 2009, isn't that the world we've been living in here yes. in the decades of the 2010s? He was ahead of the curve. And Covilla, I think the fact that he's writing this as well for the American greatness. For those of you that don't know, man, American greatness is, that's, those are serious thinking MAGA people. Ned Ryan, who's been on our show, Julie Kelly, who endorsed Fauci and Bargain and is one of our show friends. Uh, I think of Pedro Gonzalez, who's on um, Tucker Carlson's show quite a bit. And he's out there openly like, get rid of the Republican Party and Trump isn't MAGA enough. I mean, these guys are either serious MAGA people who are serious Trump folks, meaning they're not in this to, to grift off of Trump as a persona. They're like, like, they're serious into the agenda, right? Or they're so serious about the agenda, they don't think Trump's good enough on it to, to justify supporting again. So, I mean, these aren't... This is not a political grift operation. These are serious. I mean, Julie, Julie did to January to July sixth what we did to COVID, but at a time that there was nothing to gain career wise. January sixth, or January sixth. Yeah. I'm sorry. At a time there was nothing to gain career wise for it. 
She, in fact, we weren't even the lone ones. She was with us. There was a lone group of us, you know, pushing back on COVID from the beginning. But really, it was just her pushing back on July 6th at this level, kind of all by herself. And now there's been another group of people that her work has reached a certain level that has kind of joined in. So, I mean, these people are serious. This is not just a Trump. This is not we're MAGA, but we're really here to Trump shills. No, we're MAGA. And when Trump's MAGA, we're Trump. When he's not, we're still MAGA. Are those people? Is that a good description? Yeah. Okay. And if Absolutely. memory serves, Julie was not pro-Trump back, you know, when she he was running against Cruz in 2016. Isn't that the case? I think that is the case. Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at what, so they're the, the, the fact that they're the outlet to publish this. And forget about places like National Review. That, those people have, th- th- those guys have all lost most of their influence on the right nowadays. But like here at The Blaze, we have a wide variance of opinion on somebody like Trump or kind of any central figure in the Republican Party, right? Yes. Because we're, th- that's kind of our MO here. So for this to get published at The Blaze would be one thing. But for it to get published at American Greatness, I think, speaks volumes. That's what really got my attention. In fact, it was when Julia originally promoted in her Twitter feed that made me think, whoa, okay, I'm going to read this. The, The title of the article is, What is Trump to Us? And the subtitle is, To be worthy of following, post Trump leadership must be consistent indeed with the insight that vaulted Trump to public attention. So I think the first thing we're going to do here is lay this art, let this article breathe on its own and speak it for itself, no matter how long it takes to get through it. And then we're going to give our thoughts. Fair? Yep. Mr. Codevilla writes, Donald Trump became the political vehicle for the American people's resentment of their overweening, corrupt ruling class. Trump's invaluable contribution to the republic was to lead Americans publicly to disrespect that class. <laughs> Americans elected Trump to preserve freedoms and prosperity against the encroachments of that class. But instead, he became the catalyst by which that class cohered to transform the American Republic into an oligarchy. During Trump's presidency, more wealth passed from ordinary Americans to oligarchs, and more freedoms were lost than anyone imagined possible. As we consider how to remedy these losses, Trump's fateful combination of things said and unsaid, of things done and not done, must be part of our search for the persons and policies most likely to lead Republican Americans out of a quandary. In 2015 and 2016, candidate Trump's disrespectful, disdainful attitude toward the ruling class put him at the head of a presidential preference of, put him at the head of presidential preference polls and kept him there. Throughout the campaign, he said little of substance. I remember these days being on the rival campaign that drove us nuts. (laughs) Uh, He said little of substance, just enough to give the impression that he was on the side of conservatives on just about everything. He would often say, I despise those whom you despise because they despise you. I'm on your side. I'm on America's side. Trump praised or Trump promised to make America great again, but did not explain what had made it great in the first place, nor how to restore it. Never a religious person and one who had once expressed support for abortion. Trump delivered more stirring thoughts on religious freedom and the right to life than any candidate ever, including Reagan. Trump believed in the unity between himself and his followers and that they would stay with him even if he were to shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. 
millions of them reciprocated. The political and even the moral content of that unity mattered less. He did not try to support his many accusations with facts. Millions who disagreed with him or who disliked him personally voted to make Trump president and even more voted to reelect him. But whatever Trump might have thought, his voters knew that hatred for the ruling class, not Trump himself, was why they supported him. It was about themselves, not Trump. The ruling class knew it too. That is why, for most of the past six years, it brayed so much disdain from every available venue on him personally, trying to convince at least some of his followers that he is unworthy of decent people's allegiance. We need not rehearse the size, providence, ubiquity, and vehemence of the ruling class's attacks on Trump. It is near impossible to recall any official, semi-official, corporate, educational, media, or professional association that did not take part in them, often repeating the very same words ad nauseum. Trump's peculiarities made it possible for the oligarchy to give the impression that its campaign was about his persona, his public flouting of conventional norms, rather than about the preservation of their own power and wealth. That is a key what he just said there. That's one of many keys that he says. The principal consequence of the ruling class's opposition to candidate Trump was to convince itself and then its followers that defeating him was so important that it legitimized, even dictated, setting aside all laws and truth itself. That's a theme I'm going to come back to in our post-read conversation. So, Put a bookmark there. This half-decade barrage, with no small help from Trump himself, as we'll see, surely chipped away at Trump's personal standing. But by all that unanimity, all that effort and vehemence, the ruling class showed that its real target could not have been one pudgy, orange-haired septuagenarian. No, it's target. It's real enemy that they denigrated and wished to constrain, if not destroy, was nothing less than the traditional America that they did not entirely control. Amen. Hence, by its efforts, the ruling class was making the case for Trump's political persona more definitively than Trump himself could ever do. Mobilization against candidate Trump energized the ruling class and drew it together. Yet, on the morning after the 2016 election, talk of resistance to the unexpected outcome notwithstanding, no one imagined that it could morph into the oligarchy that has destroyed the American Republic. On November 4th, 2016, the presidency's awesome powers to hurt enemies rested in the hands of someone whose enmity the ruling class had turbocharged. So much depended on how he would use them. But it did so morph and fast because President Trump catalyzed the morphing. He did so by displaying what Theodore Roosevelt had called the most self-destructive of habits, combining the unbridled tongue with the unready hand. My goodness, reading this again, it's so good. Trump denounced his and his supporters' enemies, though seldom giving specific reasons for the criticism, while suffering rather than hurting, uh, while suffering rather than hurting them, motivating them to do their worst and letting them do so with impunity. He effectively accredited the very people who were discrediting him. Suffice to say, within a month of Trump's inauguration, few, if any, in Washington were still afraid of him. At the same time, those who had voted for Trump were having their lives increasingly restricted. The reasons why Trump acted as he he did are irrelevant to the fact that he acted as he did. 
and to those actions are consequences. No doubt Trump did not intend them, just as hydrogen peroxide does not intend to break down water into oxygen. It just does. Blaming Trump for the ruling class oligarchic seizure of power makes no sense. But that seizure became possible only because Trump was who he was and acted as he did. Thanks to National Security Agency Director Michael Rogers informing him of the fact right after the election, Trump knew that FBI Director James Comey, his chief subordinates, and Director of National Intelligence James Clapper had broken the law by surveilling his campaign. Nevertheless, he praised them in their agencies, kept them in office, did not refer them for prosecution, and kept secret the documents associated with their illegalities. How often were we frustrated at this? Yes. Trump let himself be stampeded into firing General Michael Flynn on wholly suspicious grounds. The only high-profile national security official who had supported him and stood in the way of the intelligence agency's plans against him and stood by as the ruling class then ruined Flynn's life. Days after inauguration, he suffered the CIA's removal of clearances from one of his appointees because he was a critic of the agency. Any president worthy of his office would have fired the entire chain of officials who had made that decision. Instead, he appointed to these agencies people loyal to these officials and hostile to himself, notably the CIA's Gina Haspel, who likely committed a crime spying on his candidacy. This is an especially crucial point about the intelligence agencies, the enmity of which there was never any doubt. He criticized officials over whom he had absolute power, but still left them in office. Even without considering that the majority of Trump appointees were hostile to him and his constituents, the fact that he filled scarcely more than a quarter of executive positions certifies that there hardly ever was a Trump administration. Speculating about why or on the basis of what networks Trump made as executive appointments is less useful than realizing how thoroughly he gave them power over the substance of policy, regardless of his own previous commitments and that he fired people less for substantive than for personal reasons. He let himself be persuaded by his first secretaries of state and defense and his second national security advisor to give a nationally televised speech in July of 2017, effectively thanking them for showing him that he and his voters had been wrong in opposing the ongoing war in the Middle East. Later, he fired them because they were just mocking him publicly. Again and again, Trump signed mammoth spending bills that contained the Democratic Party's wish lists, having promised not to, vowing never to do it again, and then doing it again. By creating trillions of dollars in debt, which the Federal Reserve monetizes and channels through financial institutions, Trump was the catalyst of the financialization that has transferred wealth from Main Street, which voted for Trump, to Wall Street, which is part and parcel of the ruling class. Trump also left untouched the tax code's carried interest provision that is the source of much of the financial sector's unearned wealth. As Google, Facebook, and Twitter increasingly squeezed conservative content to the cyber world's sidelines, Trump rallied or railed against Section 230 of the Communications Act that lets them do it with impunity, but did nothing that would stop them or even subject them to lawsuits. Trump's election only accelerated the imposition of the secular creed of government. Corporate America, the educational establishment, and the media onto the rest of Americans. Belief, or pretend belief, that America was conceived in the sin of slavery, that this marks white people indelibly, that Americans are racist, sexist, homophobic, and otherwise bad, and that we must learn to speak a new language that reflects our national repentance 
became a condition of advancement and even of continued employment. Trump shared his voters' resentment of, for example, being ordered to attend workplace sessions about their racism. But not until his last months in office did he ban the practice within the federal government. Never did he ban contracts with companies that require such sessions of their employees. Never did he try to insert a ban on such practices into spending bills. Hence, even the U.S. armed forces became his voters' enemies. And then came COVID-19. Only President Trump's complacence made possible the American people's submission to scientifically nonsensical regulations that ended up solidifying the oligarchy and transferring more wealth and power from one class to the other. Maybe more possibly than ever before in mankind's history. There never was a reason to believe that the infection by the COVID-19 virus was any more deadly than any other bad flu-like illnesses. On the contrary, most persons infected showed no symptoms. Only the elderly and infirm were at risk, no more than from any other bad flu epidemics. President Trump's reaction to COVID was wholly reasonable in the beginning. Suspend travel from infected areas, safeguard the vulnerable, develop a vaccine. But for whatever reason, the ruling class had another agenda. Best expressed by the Wall Street Journal's Peggy Noonan in her column, Don't Panic is Rotten Advice. The ruling class did everything it could to foster panic. The point was to cause Americans to agree to shut down such parts of society as the ruling class said, supposedly, to stop the spread. Quarantining infected persons has ever been a powerful tool of public health. But the notion of quarantining non-infected people is an inherently indefensible nonsense. In position of that nonsense is what made America's society's disarticulation, the disempowerment and impoverishment of ordinary Americans, and the oligarchy's further enrichment. Within nine months, COVID policy had produced 28 new billionaires. At the same time last year, we lost over one-third of American small businesses, by the way. President Trump stood in the way of that imposition until he didn't. Turning the scientific logic of quarantines on its head, Trump on March 15th, 2020, agreed to counsel people to suspend normal life for two weeks to, quote, slow the spread. Two weeks later, the New York Times crowed that Trump, having been told hundreds of thousands of Americans could face death if the country reopened too soon, had been stampeded into abandoning his goal of reopening the country by Easter. Like every other literate person, Trump knew that once an infectious disease enter a pop- enters a population, nothing can prevent it from infecting all of it until a majority has developed antibodies from contracting it, so-called herd immunity, or been vaccinated. But he agreed to support the quote-unquote experts lie to the contrary. And if he did not know in March that the experts were peddling pseudo-sophisticated lies, he certainly had to by May. The U.S. Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHME, oh yes, remember them, which modeled the authoritative predictions on which the U.S. lockdowns were based, published a prediction that as of May 14, 2020, Sweden, which did not participate in lockdowns, would suffer up to 2,800 daily deaths. The actual number that day turned out to be 38. If you see something, you should say something. Trump did not. In fact, I seem to recall he attacked Sweden last year. But thus, supporting the experts, Trump made it impossible for conservative leaders to oppose them credibly. This was the problem we had in getting a lot of our ranks to join us last year. All Democrats had to say was, see, even Trump recognizes the experts. 
Let's pause there before we get our first break. We've got about two minutes here. Thoughts on what we've shared so far? I cannot contemplate a better distillation of what our show has been about ever since March 2020 if we had written it ourselves, Steve. Just paragraph after paragraph, I'm having um, moments of connectivity with the themes that we have echoed. It, 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 on the level, I mean, this is a very gifted, gifted writer, but the underbelly of all of it, I can sense the the frustration, the oh, what could have beens, how how we tried to beg, borrow, and steal pre-COVID, post-COVID, in every way we could think of. That's what I'm left with. This guy distills the essence. Honestly, I would challenge you to do better about I your couldn't. own show, Steve. I couldn't, yeah. First of all, he uses words, I don't know what they mean, and I got a pretty expansive vocabulary. So, yeah, this this reach exceeds my grasp. I agree. Yeah, and just, just briefly, he's hitting on something, and it's something I've struggled with. It's like Schrodinger's cat. It simultaneously is never about Trump and is always about Trump. It's simul- when, when he's doing what we want and when he's being attacked for that, it's really not about him. It's about us. When he's not doing what we want and what he sent him there for, it really is about him because that's Trump. How many times have we said that? We'll come back. More from Angelo Code Villa about this moment in time and the con- conversation we need to have as a movement right now to get ready to go take on the spirit of the age. We'll continue more in a moment. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network. All right, back here on a special edition of the Steve Dace Show here on Blaze TV, radio, and podcast. Steve Dace here with Todd and Aaron McIntyre, and all of you. Trump 2024 question mark, is the juice worth the squeeze? That's the question we're having and debating, and we think we need to have this conversation now um, because it's the, the baseline, the worst we're going to get on our issues from a candidate standpoint is Trump. Either he will be the nominee or he will step aside and we will end up nominating somebody that personifies our issues maybe even more so than he does. So that's why now is the time for us to, you know, when you're in the middle of the game against the other team you're trying to beat, that's not really the point in time that you and your offensive coordinator or defensive coordinator go back and forth in the headset about the game plan, right? That was You, right. you were supposed to have that internal dialogue, if not argument, self-awareness, self-assessment, self-check. That's what Monday through Friday was for. Game day is for the game, right? So we want to have this conversation now so that we are better prepared to win that game when game day arrives. That's why we're doing it. And as our launching off point, we're using this fantastic but blunt piece from Angelo Codevilla over at the very MAGA-friendly American Greatness. Let's pick up where we left off before the break. Code Villa writes, far from rallying Americans to support reality over quackery. Now we're he's talking about uh, Trump capitulating a COVID stand. 
Trump showcased the previously unknown bureaucrat, Dr. Anthony Fauci, as America's guru on all things COVID, even as Fauci was giving multiple signs of deception as well as of incompetence while none too subtly mocking the president. This was... How many days did I lose my mind on this show about this right here? See I my mean, comment from, yeah, last, uh, last half hour. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we were calling him Pope Fauci. We were, we were trying to, like, instigate Trump. Yes. Do you understand? To get him to see, do you know what this guy, he's playing you, right? That's what Code Villa's saying here. What if Trump had simply pointed out the obvious about experts, lockdowns, masks, and consequences? What if he had told Americans the truth, that going to church or patronizing local businesses was no more dangerous than going to Walmart or Costco, and that banishing ordinary social and economic life was a totalitarian power grab? What if he had led Americans in affirming the truth that COVID is no plague and that a host of people were gaining a massive amount of power and money by pretending that it is and inciting fear? Trump recently excoriated former Attorney General William Barr for having failed to investigate election fraud. But regardless of the charge's merits, from February to 2019 to December 2020, Barr served at Trump's pleasure. This was the time when the ruling class's bureaucratic and judicial edicts were overriding state election laws. It was no secret that they were turning power over to the outcome of the 2020 election from the voters to those who count the votes. In other words, their friends. Trump had the right and duty to direct his attorney general to investigate and act against these illegalities in a timely manner and to replace Barr. Boy, how many times did we ask this question too? And however many officials it might take to make this happen, what might have happened if instead of waiting to level an impotent personal attack, Trump had used his powers in a timely way to make this happen and his pulpit to explain to the country why doing so is essential to the rule of law and to democracy. But he did not do this. Asking why he did not do it is irrelevant. In some, Donald Trump is not responsible for the oligarchy's power, but he was indispensable to it. By the time he left office, Washington was laughing at him and was hurting his voters. Whoever would lead Republican America going forward must reinvigorate Donald Trump's priceless legacy. Rhetorical disrespect of the ruling class. But Trump's rhetorical leadership was not sufficient For Republican Americans to shield ourselves and restore our liberties, we must specify and explain, and by the way, Republican here is a small r. He means this in the context of people who believe in a constitutional republic, okay? Um, For Republican Americans to shield ourselves and restore our liberties, we must specify and explain that disrespect with regard to every part of the oligarchy. Unlike Trump, We must assert and explain the falsehood of claims to superior knowledge and morality and build on these explanations by organizing and supporting popular acts of collective disobedience. The next generation of leaders must act on the warning of President Dwight Eisenhower, our collective Republican grandfather. What he gave us about the impending dictatorship of self-interested pseudo-experts. This is right in the introduction of our book as well. Quote, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. Domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is gravely to be regarded, and public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. End quote. Again, that Covilli used the same quote we used in our introduction to our book. As it turns out, these government elites and government-certified experts have been disastrously wrong and corrupt. But even if their expertise in everything from education to the military had turned out to be genuine, it would not negate the inalienable interest that the rest of us have in living our lives as we see fit, in our own freedom, in pursuing our own interests according to our own lights. 
That is why the next generation of leaders must transcend Trump by debunking, defunding, and disempowering the establishment in education, medicine, and public health, law enforcement, national security, on down the line. He's saying what we've been talking about on our show. We must, when our guys get power, they must use that power to punish our opponents. Punish them. We will not permit you to do this to people. We will punish you for it. Resting their authority on claims to expertise as they did under Trump, those in charge of our institutions eliminated objective standards about what that is. Remember when Michael Osterholm was asked on a podcast, on a health podcast, the Biden coronavirus advisor, when will the pandemic be over? Remember his answer? That's literally what he did. And then he said, that's a good question. Yep. No objective standards. They perverted merit by declaring competitive exams to be racist. But they are not about race any more than about excellence. They are about seizing power. Boy, we say that all the time. Now, Republican America must treat them as the enemies they are. Hear, here. Trump did not object to funneling more money into the establishment's power and prestige. This must change. The schools are teaching less than ever, while the colleges produce mostly worthless degrees, while credentialing a generation of oligarchs who pretend to have the moral authority to control our lives. As parents observe the poor quality, if not outright dysfunctionality, of much of that K-12 through public education, they abandon them as fast as they can. The next generation of leaders must put themselves on the parents' side by funneling public money to parents directly. This means the funding follows your child at the building level. If universities and colleges have been the fountainhead of the oligarchy's intellectual and moral character, then nothing would reduce the fountain's pressure on Republican America like curtailing that financing. Post-Trump leaders could campaign to make individual institutions liable for unpaid student debts incurred there. America's problems with merit and expertise start at the top with the unwarranted credit given to Ivy League and other highly selective schools, but these preferring compatibility to excellence admit many students with lower scores on the SAT. In general, and with the exception of the hard sciences, the more highly rated the college, the less it works or the less work it expects from its students. Hence, they confer prestige, pretentiousness, and access to enviable careers to graduates who often know less than the kids out of Podunk State. This results in a progressive negative selection of elites. Post-Trump leaders can lead Americans to end this by hiring and urging others to hire on the basis of exams rather than pedigrees. Donald Trump, along with millions of Americans, became the victim of the ruling class's mutually supportive use of the COVID-19 pandemic to seize power over the American people, pretending to serve but jointly overriding the health of Americans in multiple ways. Whoever would lead Republican Americans post-Trump must be committed to turning the tables, putting this corrupt complex's leaders in prison. All right, now you're just teasing me, okay? The entire COVID affair is a network of transparent lies held together only by the ruling class's unanimous vengeance on whoever points out that the COVID-19 virus is nothing like a plague, that quarantining the the uninfected rather than the ill and vulnerable defies common sense, that cloth masks raise the wearer's intake of carbon dioxide many times over dangerous levels, and that COVID vaccines have at least ordinary levels of dangerous side effects. Yes, 
Though many of the oligarchies enforcers of this regime of lies are only guilt are guilty only of reptilian partisanship, the oligarchs who head America's public health system, Google and other tech companies, and the pharmaceutical industry may well be liable for criminal conspiracy as well as vulnerable to civil judgments. I want to live in this country. You? Absolutely. Aaron, you down to clown with this? Absolutely. They can start by extracting information by subpoena and compelled testimony, publicizing it, organizing class action lawsuits and demonstrations, and using friendly venues for prosecutions. No greater irony exists than that during the presidency of Donald Trump, elected in no small part because of his denunciation of political correctness. Demands to conform to the norms of left-wing ideologues came to define the oligarchy that was replacing our republic. Discrediting and negating those demands is essential to freeing Republican Americans from the oligarchy's grip. The most important post-Trump task begins with disrespecting the oligarchy's every part. Here, here. That means denying their claim to be exercising legitimate Republican functions. Truth is, the FBI, CIA, and Justice, Justice Department act as agents of an oligarchic regime at war with our republic and with our Republican Americans. To respect them is to disrespect ourselves. Under current leadership, the Pentagon is at war against those Americans who identify with the Republic rather than with the oligarchy. Why accredit the enemy for anything other than enmity? Any number of big businesses and institutions demand that Republican Americans respect the private rights that Republican institutions confer on them, but they follow oligarchic power, not Republican rules. To disrespect them all is to respect the truth. Finally, he writes this. To be worthy of following, post-Trump leadership must become consistent indeed with the insight that vaulted Donald Trump into public attention. He did what was in him to do. No one would suggest it was enough or that more of the same would be enough. Picking up where he left off is up to anyone who would succeed him at the head of, as the head of America's Republicans. Wow. I mean... If I wasn't mic'd up right here, man, I'd stand up and just cheer like right now. Okay. We got about five minutes. Let's get some big picture thoughts about this piece. And Aaron, I'm going to start with you this time. What say you? So Code Villa wrote a, a similar piece back, I believe, kind of a, a quick postmortem, if you will, back in early, earlier this year, February, January, February, something like that. And this is absolutely fitting of the definition that was provided at the end of the show. The pressing issue. How would one know that Donald Trump is a changed man? Because during the course of 2015-2016, he was attacked like none other. Well, once he got the nomination, he was attacked like none other. And then once he, um, once he won the White House, surprisingly, as you all know the story, it, it was dialed up to 11. Throughout all of that, I, I think there was a pervasive sense that, uh, amongst his most ardent supporters, certainly, that, they, that he was actually going to take on the swamp, that he was actually going to drain the swamp. And you don't go to Washington. Either you drain the swamp or the swamp drains you. And for all the good things that he did, all of the great things that he did, 
rhetorically or otherwise, the swamp ended up draining Donald Trump at the end of the day. And I, I don't think if you are an, an honest person, I, I don't think you can necessarily argue otherwise. So the great quandary that we find ourselves in here is, is he coming back from the dead to wage vengeance on those who stole his presidency, his administration, and the last election away from him? Or is he going to just right it wrong in his mind? Because those are two very different things. As Code Villa, I think, without saying it, said. That's the quandary that we find ourselves in. Because, man, I, I will just put it out there. There is nobody, there's nobody in left, uh, what's left of America that could wage the war that needs to be waged on the level that it needs to be waged than a scorned Donald Trump who is able to focus all of that pent-up rage, let's call it that, and, and, and focus on that on where we want, that, want, want him to focus that and where we would like it to be focused. There is nobody, I don't care the name you, there's no Ted Cruz, no Ron DeSantis who could do that like Donald Trump. We just don't know if that's what he is doing, and that's what he's willing to do. That's the quandary that we find ourselves in. The ceiling is high. The ceiling is, is higher than anybody else out there. If he is, if he is truly a changed man, and he knows this is, this is what things are like. Hindsight is twenty twenty as they say. But if he's just going there because the ego tells him, the id tells him, um, thing, things are going to get a lot, a lot worse. I'll just say uh, there's a, a taste of the answer is us at the end, uh, which again perfectly echoes what we've been trying to talk about for a long time. And before we had ever heard of a COVID or deep into this election, I've been saying for quite some time, uh, on the show, what are you prepared to do? The, we we have a chance uh, to shape the environment that answers the question that Anthony is posing here. Not only do we have a chance, ultimately, because of what Steve says, talking about this now, it's we, we get to define the terms. We get to uh, establish what the playing field looks like that causes Donald Trump to consider his place in this. But if we sit passively by, which we're not intended to do, is that Republic small r that Steve mentioned, well, well then, no matter what happens, we'll get what we deserve at the very least. So, now that we've gone all the way through it, I hope all of you realize why we did something just now we have not done very often on this show, and that's devote that large of enough block of time to reading someone else's work, but um, this is uniquely politically prescient, but it has it has the depth necessary to get away with some of the things it asserts in an environment that, frankly, a lot of times people don't want to run columns like this because they think you don't want to hear it. You guys want to just constantly hear Trump's a victim and never does anything wrong. So next hour... We're going, to re, we're going to give some of our own thoughts on this dilemma and this quandary. And, for example, I think we're kind of in this political no-man's land right now. And I think the clock is not just ticking on us, but also on Trump. So I'll get into that, and we'll get into the issue that could trip him up. 
as well. We'll get into that and more next hour on this special edition. Stay tuned. Listening to Steve Dace on the Blaze Radio Network. Lock and load. This is Steve Dace. The Steve Day Show. And we're back. Hour two of a special edition of the Steve Day Show here, live and on demand on Blaze TV, radio and podcast. Steve Dace here with Totters and Aaron McIntyre. All of you, let us know what you think about what we think via the SteveDace.com inbox. Steve at SteveDace.com is how you can email the show. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Look for me as well on MeWe Parlor and Gab. And look for non-filtered and unedited, uncensored video clips of the program for free at rumble.com slash Steve Dace Show. If you're a podcast listener, we are looking for you to hit the subscribe or follow button whichever is applicable on your podcast platform of choice. Leave us a five-star review as well, and thank you to the thousands of you that have done either or both of those things for us already. Please consider joining their ranks. It helps to grow the podcast all the more. So we are discussing here on this special edition, Trump 2024 question mark. Basically, we're doing the calculus now. Is the juice worth the squeeze? And just to kind of sum up what we talked about in the first hour, largely with the uh, the great uh, and capable and eloquent aid of one Angelo Codevilla at American Greatness, the 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 current pressing political problem we have is that. And tell me if you guys agree with this, okay? It, it really comes down to what four, in in my opinion, four fundamentals. Let's discuss them one by one. One, there is no one that excites our base more and has shown more pushback, proven pushback, on their on the other side's narratives than Trump has. However, orange man bad is now a rationale to completely disregard the Constitution, media professionalism, election laws. It's what Covilla was talking about. The, the other side just uses his persona to calcify to a point that we've, we've, we've gone up, you know, 10, 20 years of advancement in, 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 in the tactics that we were, were being opposed by. And, and so that's a dilemma to be in. That the person that most energizes our base is the person that the other side's base just says, well, because of that, we can literally do whatever we want outside of any rules of engagement, and there would be no consequences for that. Like just steal an election from you. Yeah, like that. Like something like just that. spitballing. Shut yeah. down or, or, you know, we'll just shut down uh, one third of your small businesses that primarily vote, you know, conservative or right of center just anyway. An, just an accident. Yeah. And just Wuhan instead, luck. we'll keep all the major corporations that donate to us. We'll keep them open. Stuff like that. The negatives are so high that it simply begs the question, is is this possible even? We're not even worth it. Is it possible in the current environment? Yes, I agree. All right, point two. This means the spirit of the age has basically set a precedent that it can do anything it wants to Trump vis-a-vis, therefore, us, because he's, he's what's standing between us and them, right? So it can do anything it wants to defeat him, us, at any level, 
any level, media, academia, sports, anything. Just literally block off windows when they're counting votes and dropping bags off three days later right in your face in broad daylight. Anything they want. Nothing will happen and they will, and all chicanery will be disregarded as this threat level, we had to raise it to this level. We had to turn your football games into a culture war zone. We had to turn the Olympics into a culture war zone. We had to steal the election. We had to do all the, I'm sorry, we, we had to do uh, ma- ballot harvesting, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, mail-in voting because he's just uniquely unpopular. And of course, Trump at times has fed this narrative, no question about that. But I would, I would put up with the times he's, he's given them ammunition if I knew on the back end he was going to punish them when he had the power to do so, right? Right. I mean, I screamed here for a year, what the hell does Bill Barr do but play bagpipes when most of the conservative media that you guys have made multimillionaires were telling you that he was the greatest attorney general we ever had because he played the bagpipes, right? Yes. Yeah. He screwed us on everything. Everything. He's screwing us now. That office bar is. Julie Swetnick? I mean, Michael Evanetti went to prison earlier this year. What about Julie Swetnick? And by the way, Michael Evanetti, they took him out. First rule of assassinations, kill the assassins. They found him trying to shake down Nike. They're like, all right, dude, that guy is an embarrassment. Should have never brought him out. This is our chance to... Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. They went Miller's Crossing on Michael Evanetti. That's what they did. You know the reference I'm making here. So it wasn't the Trump Justice Department that took him out. They did on their side. Julie Swetnick with her fantastical tales of Brett Kavanaugh, serial rapist. What is she doing today? Drinking a Mai Tai somewhere? No one's ever held accountable for anything. Ever. So, I, I mean, I wouldn't care if I had a choice between Trump being even more loose with his lips in exchange for, I will break you. Ivan Drago style? I'd make that trade 50 sure. times a day, wouldn't you? Sure. Absolutely. We, cause, because here's what we know. If Trump cleaned up his act, would they be better? No. No, because they, they would do the same. They, they, they would, would just be, be worse. Yeah, they'd be cra- they were crazy. I remember Bush derangement syndrome, Palin derangement syndrome, right? Yes. Anybody with an R after their name that we put up there is going to face something along these lines, right? So I don't really care so much anymore. I used to be really hung up on it until I, I, when he used to say stuff like that one Mexican judge and stuff because I thought this is going to kill us. But then as we got deeper into his presidency, I realized, you know what? It doesn't matter. He could, give the, he could, he could read a David Barton approved script into a teleprompter at a State of the Union address, which he sometimes did, and the next day he's like a clan, the clan leader, right? It didn't matter. It just so at that point, then I don't really care what dumb he says. I poop. He says I don't care. All right. If I'm going to get the residual, and that's now why I will break you. I, then you can say all the dumb stuff you want, pick all the personal fights you want. I don't care. Not my problem. And I'd rather have them coming after you than me anyway. Amen on that. Yes. Yeah. All I ask though is if you're going to provoke them, punish them then. We just never did that. Thoughts on that? That's, of course, true. Uh, it's the, it is perhaps the greatest uh, frustration of the Trump era because w- the fight was picked. The, the fight was always there, but, uh, it, and it, you alluded to it with every president that's come before, you know, the, the, the great uh, 
uh, religious tyrant that was George W. Bush, sure. But it, this was always going to happen. But this fight was picked in a unique way. But once once you were in the dark alley, to call it anything in a, other than a dark alley is absolutely pointless because you're in endgame territory now. To invite the dark alley and not do the things of the dark yes. alley is just inexcusable. Yes, yeah, see, I thought he was inviting the dark alley. That's why I would get upset. And then I realized, no, the dark alley's going to just come to us. Yeah. All right, well, if that's the case, then then I expect him to start throwing punches back. Yeah, be that, Batman. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think I, I think the, the problem is that he's he's got the... Um, I don't know. I, I I think he's got the instincts of of um, Captain America, but in terms of actually being able to hit back, he looks like Steve Rogers prior to the the serum. <laughs> you know, you, you you've got the right you've got kind of the right tact, but it's not really for for it's all for naught if you're not able or willing or capable of directing uh, and fighting back and punching back. And far too often, I, I don't know if it was by, if it was Jared or or what it was, Jared and Ivanka, what it was. Far too often, basically all the times, unless it was a personal beef, Trump just let these people continue to fester around him. That brings me to I think the third part of our dilemma here. I think what we're describing is we're right now we're in a political no man's land. That's why I think we should have this conversation as a community, as a movement, right now. Because Trump cast such a massive shadow, such a massive presence within our base that no one could overcome it. No one could overcome it. The only people, if, hey man, if Ted Cruz called me tomorrow and said, I'm going to pay you 25 grand a month, 50 grand a month to be like the senior strategist of my national campaign and we're going to run even if Trump runs, you know what I'm going to tell him? Man, unless, unless the Lord has audibly spoke to you, do you understand politically this is probably a dumb decision? And there's a less of a chance this will be successful, far less of a chance this will be successful than when you started from a 0%, no, no name ID at all, to damn near winning the nomination in 2016. That's how large of a shadow Trump cast with our base. But then at the same... So, so if he's there, we can't really... I'm getting a lot of emails from you folks. What DeSantis, dude, no. No one has a chance against him. No one does. And, and it, I still think you'll get some, somebody who wants, who's, who's about to be term limited, Larry Hogan, Maryland, out of a governor job, but wants to be the next Jeff Flake for CNN or MSNBC, might do it just to audition Liz Cheney style for that gig. But we mean like nobody who represents us is going to step into that maelstrom. It's not happening. Why do you say that even in light of the multiple polls that we've seen where DeSantis fares better than Trump? Because no one attracts no one attracts the level of buzz that Trump does. You would have to the only candidate who would Ron DeSantis would have to begin organizationally from ground zero. And then you have a problem who's going to sign up with him to oppose Trump get the way most politicos operate, it's why Trump struggled to have capable help his first run. They didn't think he could win. 
and they thought not only could he not win, he'd get embarrassed. I'd have his mark on my resume, never overcome it the rest of my career. It's why Rick DeSantis is, has the momentum against Mitt Romney. Before the Wisconsin primary, he says, why are we going to nominate somebody who gave Obama the worst idea he had before he had it, right, with Romney care? We would, we, you're, we're going to take the number one issue we have off the table if we nominate Romney. The next day, he takes the whole thing back. Why? I'll guarantee you why. Because members of his own team came to him and said, hey, dude, you're a lifelong politician. Uh, you know how this works. You go scorched earth on Romney. If you lose, we don't get hired in his campaign and we're all effed. That's how this works. And so who's DeSantis going to build a 50-state platform campaign with who's going to say, yeah, I mean, I'll go up against the 800 pound. I'll go up against Godzilla mid-fire breath, and I guess I don't ever care about working again. The one candidate who has the organization and name ID to do that is Cruz, but right now he does not have the energy or the, the juice with the base to do it. So DeSantis has the energy and the base to do it. Cruz has the national name ID and organization to do it. We don't have anybody that has both of those things. And no one can get to both of those things, I believe, unless Trump gets out of the way. So we've, we've got a, a political no man's land as part three here, in my, in my view, where he, Trump casts such a massive presence, no one else will get a fair vetting with, with our base beyond him as long as he occupies that space. But as long as he occupies that space, the other side will continue with, we can just do whatever we want to you and blame it all on, it's, he's just uniquely unpopular. You know what I'm saying? I do. And that brings us to the fourth thing. We need one of two things, I believe, to happen in the next two years from the time you're watching this. We either need a more resolved and disciplined version of Trump. You asked earlier, how would we know we're going to get something like that? Well, look at the lawsuit he filed earlier this year. Watch it closely. Is it just, are you getting just fundraising letters for it? Or... Do you see who the names are that have aligned themselves in that class action lawsuit? That he is going to be the vehicle by which to represent those people. Those are two totally different things. So we either need a more resolved and disciplined version of Trump who is both more prepared for the opposition and is more prepared to then follow through against them, or we need him to step aside for someone else to show us if they are. And I think we got a two-year window for that to occur, maximum. Any thoughts on that? I don't even think the window is two years. I don't. I th- I think this is. Uh, and it it well. When does the uh, it DeSantis? It will will really the game is really going to be afoot when he wins re-election, and then we see how it behaves out of out of there. Particularly because I don't if it think- is a, particularly if it is a sweeping. Yes. Win. Like in Florida, that would be like if he won by like eight to 10 points, that's like, you know, winning by 20 points in most other places. Because well, that uh, we've said, we've stressed it's important for him to just focus on that. But that also does help Trump out in a manner of speaking, because Trump's hand isn't really forced in some ways. Now, you, we talked about it uh, uh, a while back about uh, the polling that I just got done mentioning, and perhaps Trump reacted uh, to that in terms of uh, starting to be uh, more out, do more interviews, things mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, he, he really, really has, he will not have to put his foot on the gas 
uh, in, in, in any way short of circumstances that we can't envision right now until he sees how the guy who isn't going to talk about running for president wins Florida again and then imme- almost immediately we'll have to say, oh, yeah, by the way, thanks, but I'm also running for president. Aaron? This is it, it, one. I'll I'll just get this, and I should have said this earlier in the in the first hour. Um, it's it's exhausting talking about Trump because, um, you know, I, I have found that that most people uh, do not take kindly to certain criticisms of him, and so I feel like every time it's like walking on eggshells. Every time we criticize Trump or say should have done this, could have done this, do we know? that he is going to um, right the wrongs. I feel like you have to put a disclaimer out there. You know, I think he did. I didn't vote for him the first time. I did the second time. Uh, You know, he did some really good things. He didn't do some great things. But, you know, overall, I'm not anti-Trump. I have to give that um, bleeping disclaimer every time. And it's exhausting because, quite frankly, a lot, uh, there's a large chunk of people out there who just want to be belly rubbed when it comes to Trump. So I say this with that disclaimer that I feel like I have to give every time. Um, The thing that's also exhausting about Trump is that it may seem one way one day and another another day. Yesterday, um, there were times when I thought that Trump was definitely going to run. Today, you know, not so much. Next week, next month, that's just the way he is. He's a mercurial individual. So this conversation may be moot at the end of the day. But overall, we have to ask ourselves honestly, each one of us. And if you're annoyed already and you've already turned off, off, off this, uh, this, this program, if you're already annoyed, um, this obviously is is not directed at you because you're not here. But if you're if you are here, then you're at least of some stripe a critical thinker. What kind of a people are we? What is the aim of trying to send Trump to Washington to the White House again? And what what incentive does he have to govern the way you think and hope that he can and expect that he will? What incentive would he have by going to the White House again? There are two possibilities to that. One is what I articulated earlier, that he is there. He is back from the dead with a vengeance to haunt those, for the rest of their lives maybe, to haunt those who wronged him, who stole his presidency, your presidency, his election, your election, from you and from him. He's back there to right the wrongs for you and by extension for him, but you first. Or he's back to right the wrongs that were, that were done against him first and foremost. And if he gets around to doing stuff for you, uh, blah, 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 blah. How do we know that? How will we know that? And um, we'll see. We still have ample time to see if... If he truly has changed and has some some follow through on that. And, um, you know, earlier this summer, we released a video. I think it was nine questions we need answers to for a potential Trump 2024 run. 
What kind of answers do we have to those questions? That's out on YouTube. We can go back and find that and, and rectify that. Maybe we should by the end of the year. But in my mind, what we've seen so far, there's not enough evidence that he truly does understand what the threat is and what needs to be done. The punishment that needs to be taken uh, out on those who have done you dirty and done him dirty. So to me, I think there's two things we have to discuss before we get out of here today. One of them I'm going to say for the next segment. There, there's a lingering issue that is developing as we speak that could absolutely be a fly in the ointment here. Um, we'll set that aside for a moment and discuss it after in our final segment. Let's discuss the other thing that I think we absolutely have to talk about. Because you can't replace somebody with nobody, right? Let's say, and, and given the known ROI you have with Donald Trump. We started this off by admitting that while we would argue at the same time he did not do as much as we needed, he did more than we've ever gotten before, right? Yes. So there's a, there's a, let's look at this as an investment. We have a baseline ROI with Donald Trump. We all already agree it's the highest ROI we have received, although as you said, the bar is low, but he still gets some credit for exceeding it, right? Yep. Okay then I'm going to walk in. This is your investment portfolio is your vote. I want to convince you to move on from a stock that you know has a certain level of ROI and move on to a stock that whose performance you don't know yet. But, but I can show you its profile, that its ceiling, its portfolio potential, or its potential is higher for your portfolio. Who could we do that with? Meaning, who do we look at right now? Because everybody's going to bring weaknesses to the table, okay? Who could we look at and say they could take the ground that Trump has already taken and go on with it? Let's look at a few names. Let's look at three names of somebody whose opinion I highly respect recently gave me after they read the Code Villa piece, okay? Let's start with... The first two are obvious. Angelo Code, I'm sorry, uh, that was, it was the Code Villa piece. Ron DeSantis. How easy of a sell if you are the investment manager, you're the stockbroker, you're going to somebody now, this is their portfolio, their whole life savings is in this, right? And so they know there's a certain ROI they're going to get from another, from Donald Trump that's established. Can you make a strong case that the ROI potential of Ron DeSantis outweighs the known quantity of Donald Trump. Because that's really the way people think, right? Yes. That's the case that has to be made. Is there a strong case that Ron DeSantis's potential is worthy of risking in order to say no to a guaranteed ROI, baseline ROI from Donald Trump? I think there's an incredibly strong case. You think there's an incredibly strong case? Aaron? I would say you... I would say there's an incredibly strong case as well. I would say okay. there's as strong a case as any of us could have hoped to have been made in light of all of the circumstances. Ron DeSantis on many days to me feels like a, a miracle that he exists at all. Hmm. Under, based on things you've said about surviving in Florida, the pressure on him, the jokes about you know whatever happened in whatever state is DeSantis's fault. Uh, the fact that he exists at all is is, is remarkable. 
it's funny you should say that. One of the reasons I haven't gone out of my way to like go down there and meet him or push any or pull any strings is I'm kind of afraid of being disappointed. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? That I, I'm I'm so enjoying watching what he's doing from afar. I don't want to take that away from myself. Yeah. That makes sense? Oh, totally. Okay. So you both agree that if you are the stockbroker selling to the average investor in our audience and their lives are tied into at least some segments, some portion of the, of their lives are tied into this investment called a vote. You think you can make a very strong case that the upward potential of Ron DeSantis taking it from here is worth risking setting aside the known ROI you get back from Trump. So you're both, you both think you can make that case with Ron DeSantis. I believe so. Okay. Ted Cruz. Aaron, I'll let you start. Mm. I, uh, I, I don't think, I don't think there's nearly as strong of a case. You could make a case. I just don't think that Cruz is comfortable getting into the muck and mire and, uh, of at least rhetorically, which is important, but I don't think he's capable or able when they go low to be able to fend that off. I, I think he has the tendency to turtle a little bit as we saw with Trump so I, I don't think there's as strong of a case. I do think there is a case, but not nearly as strong as DeSantis. Which case would you make for yourself? Which case would I make for myself? Yep. Aaron McIntyre? Yeah. Against Trump? Yeah. Cruz or Trump? Um, I, don't, I don't understand. If so, you were selling yourself. Oh if, I, oh, if I was selling myself yeah. to Cruz or Trump? Yeah. No, no. If you were making the assessment of Cruz vis-a-vis Trump yourself, oh, which how would you how, what would you do? Um, I would trust Cruz a little bit more on a policy front. I would trust Trump a little bit more on the actual fight hmm. part. You are the most Trump skeptic in yep. our th- of our threesome. Yep. Let me rephrase that. It's a little bit of, of a our, yin- of our trio. Yeah. For you to be at that point from a, from a, your own calculus perspective, I think speaks volumes. If you're there, where do you think most of this audience probably is if I ask them that question then? Somewhere a lot further <laughs> away, I would say, on Cruz yeah, anyway. I would, I would, I'd say this is probably I hate, true. I hate that because, he, to me, Ted Cruz is the type of dude that you want to have in the White House. I just don't know if you can get him in the White House. You think governing is not his issue, getting there is exactly. his issue. Yeah, I would I would not hesitate to just choosing for me to choose Ted Cruz. I mean, that's it's such an impossibly easy answer, but I am in the same place. I, I don't know if you can get him there, and I, I, I don't know if he would fully understand and— because denial would almost be better than trying to fully understand how much digging you would have to do to get under people's perception of you vis-a-vis Donald Trump and what that the memory of the heavyweight fight that took place and what people think of it and who landed what punches I I, I just I it's a it that getting out of that might be harder than whatever he faced the first time all right so you think who do you think's more upsellable, Cruz or DeSantis? Oh, DeSantis. Okay. Oh, that's so you think about. DeSantis? If again, you're you're a stockbroker trying to sell yeah. a product, you think DeSantis is the easier sell, but you also think there is more upward value in a President Cruz than a second President Trump. 
Yes, but that's definitely in the way you framed it for for me personally and what I would go with, how many people I could take along with. Listen, I think there's uh, Ted Cruz because of what I said, the shadow he needs to get out of with with some people, not all people, but Nikki Haley. Okay. She might be because of what she was viewed as an independent right, pro-Trump I, I, guy. I want to get to the third person because yeah. I think Nikki Haley's dead in the water. Um, the third person that was thrown at me by someone whose opinion I immensely respect as someone who has a quiet, unassuming personality that does not blow everybody up, but was very loyal to Trump and his administration and served in arguably the most powerful position as administration. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. This person viewed this guy as very, very, uh, very tied to the conservative, particularly Christian conservative base, but also very, very loyal to Trump without getting a lot of that on him at the same time. What do you think? If Trump decides not to run and slurps all over him, okay, but it would take that. Because he doesn't have enough of a record on his own, so you'd need to... Yes. Okay. okay. Aaron? No. No. I, I I would I would not even try to sell Pompeo. I, I, I you know, if, if Trump decides not to run and, and Pompeo is the only option when or only option aside from Kasich or Hogan or something, sure. But I there's not nearly enough of a case that I could make for Pompeo against Trump. Is there anybody I didn't ask you guys about that you think you could sell? Perhaps Rand Paul. Okay. But again, we're struggling once you get past those first couple of names, oh, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. See? That's one of the issues we have with, with, with our own people. It ain't like there's nine or ten people waiting in line to kind of take this ball and charge up the hill with it. You know what I'm saying? Right. So that's a hard call to make. All right, let me get rid of the guy that I that I know what I'm gonna get and go with really two people you kind of think have have higher potential that's a tough calculus to make when you have to work it out that way of course now there's one issue that we think threatens trump uniquely we'll discuss that when we come back the truth straight no chaser steve dace on the blaze radio network segment of what I hope has been a fascinating special edition of the show for you. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. On purpose, we had a couple of, um, I guess I would say, um, outlined issues we wanted to address, but nothing specific because we wanted to see where the conversation took us today. And and even though I think all three of us, if we were to admit our bias coming into this conversation, would prefer we have an alternative to Trump in 2024. When you have to itemize it and specify it, it's not as easy of a case to make as it's as as pleasantly as it sounds hypothetically, as we just learned walking through the exercise, right? 
Yeah, because we're in the dark alley now. You can't yes. lie about it. Yes, that 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 is so. That's. <laughs> I think the the last segment just articulated why we all are in this quandary right now. Okay, all right. So let's finish this up here uh, as 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 we conclude our conversation on Trump twenty twenty four question mark is the is the juice worth the squeeze here? One of the things I've I've talked about in the past when helping you folks to learn how to think for yourselves, not to buy into political spin that it claims it's analysis but isn't. You're being spun. How you can analyze situations objectively. And um, one thing maybe you've heard me say in the past is that politicians don't frame environments. Environments form or frame politicians, right? Yes. Could Donald Trump have won the way he won in 2016 in 1984 or 88? No. No. There wasn't that much. Our institutions hadn't turned on us to that level yet. We're in a pre-NAFTA world, right? Okay. Pre-most favored nation status for China world, right? Just it, it, it was the, the message resonated because against, as Code Villa talked about, his fury against the ruling classes, disrespect for them. I liked that. Um, resonated because it resonated with the times in which we live, meaning that the inv- Trump did not frame the environment. The environment framed Donald Trump. I believe, and you guys tell me what you think. I think right now, barring one issue, we already kind of know what the general environment is going to be. Because much of the, many of the themes that Trump touched on in 2016, you know, we've talked a lot in this show about how his presence further calcified the opposition to go to the extents that we thought they might do in 10 or 20 years if unchecked and they did it in 10 or 20 minutes, right? Yes. Hasn't the same thing happened on our side though? Are we not finally seeing conversations about defunding the teachers unions, the kinds of stuff that we used to say on shows like this and we were told we were nuts, crazy, Republicans wouldn't even come on and talk about and now it's this stuff's like going on openly right, right. now, right? Yeah. And so just as they saw Trump and then up to their efforts, we saw, wow, you guys are willing to go that far? Then I guess lock and load kind of from a political standpoint, right? Right. So I think barring one particular issue or a catastrophic event, aliens land in Washington, another 9-11, okay, that level of event, which no no one can gauge, and let's not even attempt to because there was a depressing usually, right? I think there's only one issue that gets in the way of already knowing what our 2024 environment is. Because a lot of the issues and themes that Trump touched on are still left unresolved, right? Yes. And they're certainly not going to be resolved by the 2022 midterms. I mean, as let's face it. If the 2022 midterms go the way that it looks like, we're going to enjoy... Um, watching the Dems get punked for like a two or three days, right? And then when you watch Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell take over, we're going to get, it'll be what, uh, mid-January? So like in a week or two, you're going to, it's going to feel like they never had a 2022 midterm. We're going to be like, Republicans suck, let's move on to 2024, right? Yeah. Okay, because we know how this, we know how this ends. But there is a lingering issue out there that I think could alter this environment. And I think it has a unique impact upon Trump, the vaccines. That if 
certain ominous trend lines and storylines. You know, you've got all that censorship going on right now, trying to keep these things down. Talk earlier this summer of uh, door-to-door evangelistic efforts to take the experimental injections. Uh, Earlier this year, the bribery attempts to take the lotteries, right? And yet they've still capped out in terms of how many Americans are willing to go through with this, as of now anyway. If things that they've tried to keep hidden, you know, the truth under a sovereign God still has a way of finding you out, right? If certain storylines about the true nature of these vaccines, true certain trend lines about the side effects of these vaccines, if they continue and Democrats in power respond to those trend lines by doubling down on tyranny, thus drawing up even more disdain amongst a lot of our own people for these vaccines. They become, they're not even vaccines anymore. They're symbols now. That's kind of what they're becoming now. Now, right? Yes. And, and of course, this is the main claim to fame of his presidency. And his, those are his words. I mean, this is, he, he, he has clearly articulated, I basically saved uh, America and, and the world with these vaccines and Operation Warp Speed. Trump has, depending on whether you're with him or against him, a shameless, frustrating, clever, genius way of gaslighting his way out of ever being pinned down on anything. Could he, could he do that on this? Would he be willing to do that on this? Can you get away with telling your base, this is my greatest claim to fame ever, but um, I think it's wrong for them to come to your door and demand you take them or not let your kid in a school? Can he do both of those things at once? That, to me, is the one issue out there, barring a cataclysmic event, that could alter the upcoming environment. What are you guys' thoughts on that? He could, but not merely rhetorically. This speaks to what you and Anthony have been talking about. Where's the flesh on the bone? Where are the scalps? Why do you not punish these people who are clearly, uh, at, at, at the very least, they're running counter to your agenda, if not doing flat-out illegal things? There, it would have to be blood sport, and Trump would obviously have to win. Then, yes, I believe he could get away with it. But I also, and after Aaron uh, thinks, I think there's one more variable that might be on the table along with vaccines. I also agree, and I'll lay that out and hopefully not step on you, Todd. Um, I agree. It just depends how widespread these adverse reactions are. Um, it's one thing to say, oh, those stories that you hear about the adverse reactions, those are fake news media, blah, 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 all of that. But when you're telling that to people who know of and uh, are friends with or family of those who have had serious reactions and you hear Trump saying that, basically saying your, your, your reaction is fake news, that that's that's where the rubber meets the road there in a bad way for Trump. But if they are as rare as they claim they are, 
Trump will be able to get away with the fake news narrative that, that he so deftly wields. And Todd, apologies in advance if you and I are thinking about the same thing. There is one other issue. How do Amy Coney Barrett, Brett Kavanaugh, mm. and Neil Gorsuch vote on the Mississippi abortion case? Oh, yeah, brother. Yeah, That's you're right the about big that. Thing. Yeah. Because I, I don't think it's really putting it out, out there that far. If they vote the right way on this and the Supreme Court upholds the ban, within that next two years, you're going to see a few states start to really make some serious inroads against Roe. And he can really make the case at that point he's the most pro-life president we ever had. Exactly. Yeah. And that will cover a multitude of, of sins. <laughs> nice. So, I mean, that that's his talking point now, but now this yep. would cement it. Now yep. it's not just a talking point. Exactly. But what happens if it's five to four? And one of which would mean one of his three justices is the deciding vote mm -hmm. against Mississippi. I had not even thought about that game plan, game theory. That went out for me, Erzin. Oh, I'm with her. And then, but that you did not step on my toes. Um, oh, that's that's even harder to game theory out than what I'm going I mean, to. What's uh, Trump say that? All right. I think we all know what happens no matter what the margin is the day after the court renders a verdict on Mississippi. If it's if they rule if they uphold the Mississippi law, then Trump's going to come out in five minutes and say I'm the most pro life president of all time. I promised you when everybody told me not to do it, I'd appoint justices that would overturn Roe v. Wade, and I did it, right? And and that and he will own that space forevermore. That's the new standard. He's he has reset the standard for what it means to be a pro life national Republican politician. Fair? Yeah. What happens in what does he say right after if they rule the other way? What does he say? Well, I because it'll I, be one of at least one of his at least one of his judges that would rule the wrong way. At least one, if not more. I think that depends on what we say. It should depend on what we say, who we are, and this speaks to the other thing I think could influence it because it speaks to what you say, Steve, about the environment. How much we we all sat there and thought that life had genuinely changed. I know we did at least for five minutes. When we had bags of frozen baby parts, but but we didn't, and ultimately the political lay of the land really didn't change that much. And sooner or later, the answer is us. And so it depends on what we say about that. Just as it it depends on what happens here uh, in uh, September, uh, and uh, October and November when we have school board elections. Yeah. Because those will be the first elections after whatever happened to Donald Trump. And originally, we wanted to drain the swap, but we we still had the same premise, generally speaking. You at the federal level, you take care of it for us. And now we are seeing uh, at school board meetings with CRT across America, uh, is, it the, is it the after credit scene after the very first Avengers movie when it goes to Thanos and he says, fine, I'll do it myself or something like it's, that? It's Age of Ultron, I think, is Age when of that Ultron. happens. Yeah. Well, but this is, America's version of that is, they're kind of going that way, and it should have been that way all along, because you can never rely on Trump or any other president to do this. You need to take it back. And if, if that, if we see video after video for months of people going back, and we genuinely, I don't even know how you measure it, Steve, but if there's clearly an impact where we have taken our schools back, that could fundamentally change the lay of the land. You have a reaction to that, Aaron? I agree. I agree with that. And it may be, I know that we're planning at some point, um, 
you know, doing a show on uh, on a piece that was written just regarding um, basically a retrospective of the last year when it comes to the elite, the uh, the COVID pandemic, and, and Donald Trump. Um, my reaction to that, and my reaction to the last year, is if 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 we have to, if we have truly changed our priorities, it really doesn't matter. Really, I honestly, it doesn't really matter who's elected president or who gets the Republican nomination. If the priorities have changed to go local, which is what I think the proper reaction to the last year and a half has been, then it really doesn't matter um, at a macro level because the, the local control is is where it's at. So that could change the environment, and but that's an indication of a much of a much better thing, in my opinion. Might even be indication of revival that people are actually taking taking charge and, and taking responsibility for their, for their birthright. But uh, I, I agree, that's a, that's a macro, that's a transcendent fundamental, though, that, is, that has changed. And I'll, I'll channel Todd uh, back in 2016, uh, the status quo is the status quo until it's not yep. anymore. That would be an indication that the status quo has changed. All right, we've got a little bit more than three minutes left. Let's get some final thoughts from both of you. Well, my final thought is a question because you reacted to Anthony's first paragraph just like I did, the quality of the writing. But take every word on its face as important. I would, it, is this overstated in any way when he says Trump's invaluable contribution to the republic was to lead Americans publicly to disrespect that class? That only not speaks to something that he felt needed to happen. Disrespect. Not just disagree with disrespect, but that Trump was uniquely the person that could bring that about. I, it's an incredibly powerful. Is it overstated in any way? No. And I think it goes to what a lot of, what I struggled with on the Cruz campaign in 2016 is I, I struggled to answer, one of the th- struggle, struggles I had was to answer the challenge when people would say, he's a young senator. Um, he is just starting out doesn't come from a wealthy family. How do we know he doesn't get there, get taken in, get bought off? Trump's made billions of dollars. Um, I think he is freer to push envelopes that somebody from within the system, no matter how pure, conservatively pure they are, can't, right? Yeah. And and of course, my, my the best way I could answer that challenge was to say, that may be true, but how can you trust a guy that until he came down from an escalator has aligned with us almost his entire adult life on many of the issues we care the most about, right? But we can't use those arguments anymore because now we have a presidency. Right. We have a record, right? right? So I would answer, yeah, I agree with that. that or, I, or at least I agree that enough people agree with that. Or at least I agree that he, because of the freedom of his wealth, felt a confidence to push some boundaries and some envelopes that maybe others did not because if it blows up in his face, he just goes back to Trump tower, probably goes back to being a reality TV star. And it's like, none of this ever happened after a while. Right. Mm -hmm. Where if Ted Cruz does this or Scott Walker does this, their livelihoods, their careers, they've worked their entire lives, gone to school for it. All that's over in an instant. Right. So I absolutely think there's merit to that comment. Mm. You bet. Well, that's one of his superpowers. If people still think he was so uniquely qualified to do something even as we've laid out he didn't get all the results if it's more the former and not the latter to people he will be indestructible but if it's more the latter 
that's all. And then you concede DeSantis for being mm-hmm. the guy can actually bring results. That's mm-hmm. all ball game to me. Mm-hmm. Aaron, a final thought? Yeah, if this is, I, I will say this. I would take Trump above anybody in the field, including Ron DeSantis, if I knew and had a good indication, a reliable indication, that Donald Trump is going there to have the final word, not to have the last laugh. That's a different thing. Yep. The last laugh means I'm venerated. The final word is the Constitution and this country and the people who do all the living and dying around here, they're venerated. If I had confirmation about that, take him above anybody else. John 317. This is Steve Dace. On the Blaze Radio Network.